You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92 by Rudolf Steiner, the listener's notes of 16 lectures, entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 10, given in Berlin on the 28th of October, 1904, entitled The Trojan War. Since we have a few newcomers here today, I should like to mention briefly that I have tried in the course of these sessions to show how various myths and legends have an esoteric content, and that one just needs to be able to sort out the language of these myths and legends to find, in some cases, profound esoteric truths in them. Today I should like to speak about one of the legends that have the peculiarity of being a legend, on the one hand, but on the other hand have a completely external content derived from the physical plane. In other words, they express a very specific physical event. Before I speak about this legend, I would like to mention a fact most of you are already aware of, but which we need to impress upon ourselves again and again. It is this, that during the course of our fifth root race, so in the period from the downfall of Atlantis in the fourth root race to the next root race, a great step was taken in the whole evolution of humanity namely that leaders of humanity, the Manus, arise out of humanity itself. All the great Manu leaders who had advanced humanity in the previous root races, who gave it its great impulses, had not undergone their development purely on the earth, but in part on other heavenly bodies, and had thus brought to the earth from other worlds the great impulses they had to give to humanity. The Manus of the Lemurian, and Atlantean races, and also the original Manu of our fifth root race, are superhuman individualities, who underwent on other planets their great schooling, whereby they could become leaders of humankind. By contrast, there are individuals during our fifth root race who become so highly developed within humanity itself that they can become leaders of humankind from the sixth root race onward. And the chief leader of the sixth root race will be a human being just as we are, but one of the most advanced, or the most advanced of all human beings. He will be a being who began his development in the middle of the Lemurian period when humanization in general began, but was able to progress more quickly and participated in all the stages of human evolution. This will be the fundamental nature of the Manu of the sixth root race the chief Manu of the sixth root race and all those at his side, must pass through initiations of the most varied kinds. They have to have been initiated many times over. Thus from its beginnings there had always been initiated individuals in the fifth root race, individuals who were initiated in the direction, so to speak, that they could walk the path of their own free will. Throughout the whole of the Lemurian period, and also during Atlantean times, this had not been the case. Those who had helped the progress of humankind at that time, who governed and guided it, who were the leaders of states 
and the leaders of large religious communities were under the influence of higher beings. During the Lemurian and Atlantean period, they were directly dependent on those more highly developed beings who had undergone development on other planets. Only in the fifth root race is humanity liberated more and more. Here we have initiates who are associated with higher beings, to be sure, but who are not given such broad and fully worked out advice. The initiates of the fifth root race are given increasingly more freedom in working out the details. The initiates are indeed given directives, impulses, but in such a way that they carry them out using their own mental, spiritual capacities and judgment. Our fifth root race has seven sub-races. They arise as follows in the course of development. The first sub-race is the race of spirituality, of the spirit. It is the race from which Indian culture originated, the culture of the Rishis, the Vedic culture. We then have the second sub-race, the race of the flame. This is Persian civilization that finds its expression in the religion of Zarathustra. Then we have the third sub-race, which we call the race of the stars, the original Chaldeans, of which the Israelites are a major branch. The fourth sub-race is the cultural group from which the Greeks and Romans emerged, the race of personality. The fifth race is the race of the world. This is the one we ourselves are in, the cultural group of the Germanic and Anglo-Saxon peoples, which at present is in a phase of development and which makes people into free personalities. It is the race that conquers the physical world. It will be succeeded by the Slavic sub-race, a cultural group coming up from Asia. I spoke in my last lecture about the great initiates of the Nordic regions. I mentioned that symbolic terms were used for an initiate or for someone with some kind of connection with initiations. And one symbolic expression was that the initiate was invulnerable. This invulnerability, which we meet in Siegfried, is also found in Achilles. Indeed, there is a profound esoteric meaning in the myth involving Achilles. You must bear in mind that what I have described takes place gradually in the course of the fifth root race. The Manu had arranged the leadership of humanity at the beginning of the fifth root race in such a way that it was completely under the care of the priesthood who received their inspirations directly from higher divine beings, from superhuman beings. It could even be left to these priests to categorize the people. It would have been impossible in any culture other than one led by priest rulers to divide people justifiably into castes. Thus we find a caste system actually only in the real priest cultures in ancient India and in ancient Egypt, where initiated priests were at the top, who did not follow comic impulses but higher instruction. They acted impersonally, comma-free, and it could be left to them to undertake the serious business of dividing people into castes, which in Egypt and India was originally fully justified. If you look at these castes, you find the whole plan for the development of the fifth root race incorporated in them. This plan is that the guidance, the leadership of the fifth root race has gradually moved from a priestly caste of mind to a worldly one, from the priest to the king. 
a worldly king who was not a priest would still have been an absolute impossibility in the early stages of the fifth root race. In the Atlantean period, when people did not yet receive their impulses from the thinking intellect, but from other forces, and even still at the beginning of the fifth root race, the guidance of humankind had to be kept away from any worldly powers and left to those who received divine inspiration. Thus you find in Indian and Egyptian civilization a pure rule by priests. The priest is the regent, the source of everything. The priest belongs to the highest caste. Warriors, who have a purely earthly occupation, belong to the second caste. Then it goes down to those who farm the land. It was intended that these castes would gradually become independent. In what develops in the flow of time, we never have what is really externally present in space. Please note this. If a spatial relationship is to become temporal, this happens in a ratio of four to seven, in such a way that the fourness expands into a sevenness. The four castes, juxtaposed in space, come to temporal expression during the course of the fifth root race, so that we see seven sub-races gradually developing to independence. The ratio of four to seven is based on a very particular law. Today I will just say about this that the seven sub-races develop in such a way that in the first sub-race we essentially have exclusive rule by priests. In the second root race we have rulership by priest kings and magi. Zarathustra, the true magus, is the advisor of the priest king. During the third root race, rulership can be transferred to worldly kings, who still follow the advice of priests. Only during the fourth root race do we have worldly kings who are no longer in relationship with priestly power. The first worldly kings appear initially among the Greeks, and Greek dominion becomes more established through worldly kings. The expansion of Greek civilization is depicted outwardly, in legendary form, in the story of the Trojan War. This legend of the Trojan War is no less than the mythical depiction of an esoteric truth, namely the blossoming of the fourth root race and the supersession of the final phase of priestly rule by purely worldly rule. This is indicated right at the beginning of the legend of Troy in an exceptionally subtle way. You know that in esotericism, matter is everywhere portrayed by the symbol of water. Water is the esoteric symbol for matter. I need only point to a theological example. In the Nicene Creed, where it says, quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate, close quote, it should actually say, quote, suffered in Pontos Pilatos, close quote, which means, quote, in compressed water, close quote. The Son of God descended to suffer in the matter present on the physical plane. In the Christian credo, Pontos was Latinized into Pontius and Pilatos into Pilatus. When Thales says everything has arisen from water, what he means by this in truth is all-encompassing physical matter. We are dealing here with water as physical material. Physical material will be the yardstick for those who assume the guidance of humanity, the worldly kings. Previously, there had only been kings who had a connection with the divine, 
Peleus is the king who is to rule on the physical plane, drawing his power from the physical plane itself. In the mysteries this was depicted for the people in a myth by telling them that Peleus married the sea goddess Thetis. What we have here is the marriage of the guidance of humanity with the material of the physical plane. Thetis is the goddess of water of the sea, and the offspring of this marriage is Achilles. Achilles is the first initiate of this kind. He is therefore invulnerable, except on his heel. All the initiates of the fourth subrace are still vulnerable somewhere. Only at the end of the fifth subrace will there be initiates so far advanced that they are no longer vulnerable. Achilles is dipped in the sticks. This means he has died in everything of an earthly nature and is caught up into a higher plane. We have an important phase here in humanity's development. In the middle of the fourth subray, spiritual life descends and we have initiates of the physical plane for the first time. And now something very special occurs. The previous world leaders had been kama-free. They were without lower desires. They had had to cast off everything of a comic nature through the various levels of their previous initiations up to the point of spiritual initiation. As long as there had been priests in the ancient sense of the word, it had been impossible for anything of a comic nature to influence the rulership of the world. But kama brings about separation. Kama makes it possible for people to turn against one another. There had been battles and conflicts before this too, but people had not yet progressed to the point of being able to contrast good and evil. We can't measure strife and war among the people of that time by our present yardstick. We must measure it with the same gauge as for the animal world. One couldn't say something was good or evil any more than we can say that a lion or a tiger is good or evil. Real evil first began when Manas united with Kama, and man was directed by Kama. And this led to people fighting against one another consciously. This is indicated in the myth by the fact that at the wedding of Peleus and the sun goddess Thetis, all the gods are present, but one goddess is absent. Eris is missing, the goddess of strife, because humanity was still at a stage before Kama united with Manas, which gave rise to a separation by which people contrasted themselves with others. But then Eris appears. She throws an apple among the guests on which is written, quote, to the fairest one, close quote, in order to sow discord. This then led to the first war in the fifth root race, the responsibility for which lay entirely in human hands. Only after this point is it possible to speak of people raging consciously against one another. Everything else in the myth is an elaboration of what began here. The apple of Eris was to go to the most beautiful of the goddesses, the three goddesses Hera, Pallas Athena, and Aphrodite, argue over the apple. These three goddesses signify different levels of soul life on the higher spiritual planes. But things are no longer to be decided on the spiritual plane, but on the physical plane. Paris is therefore called upon to make his judgment from the physical plane. Here is the crux of the matter, where the essential point becomes tangible. What results must ensue when decisions are made from the physical plane? 
When manas first appeared on the physical plane, it mingled with kama. To be sure, people were kamic before this, but this did not have the significance of good and evil. But now manas united with kama, and people thus became conscious of their deeds. Manas entered into what is man's lower nature. He had attained his kamic evolution already on old moon. The coarsest comic elements fell away from the earth with the withdrawal of the moon and now accompany the earth as its moon satellite. In esotericism, the moon is the light motif, the marker for our lower nature, for that which pulls us down, for where we could end up if we ourselves incline to our lower nature. The ominous aspect of the union of manas and kama during the fourth sub-race is that man who has to make decisions connects himself with the comic element, with the moon principle, with Selene. The name Helena comes from Selene. In the association of Paris with Helena, we have the marriage in the fourth sub-race of Manas with Kama symbolically expressed. Man on the physical plane has grabbed the moon principle to himself. You can find this everywhere in esotericism where moon is spoken of. The result of this whole liaison being created directly on the physical plane in a conscious way between the Manas principle and the Kama principle is war. The Trojan War is also a symbol of this fact. It really did take place. The most important events of the Trojan War were played out on the physical plane. But they also have a symbolic significance. The myth of the Trojan War has a mystical content, but the events also took place externally on the physical plane. Now, there is something else I would ask you to understand. When the fifth root race has reached its end and the sixth root race is on its ascent, an influence will have been developed in the area of the conscious intellect, which at the moment, during the fifth sub-race, is still very much in the background, but is nevertheless already in development. It is something that emanates from the musical element. The significance of music will come to expression more and more in the fifth sub-race. Music will not just be an art form, but will be a means of expression for things quite different from what is purely artistic. There is something here that points to the influence of a very particular principle on the physical plane. The most significant impulses from the initiates of the fifth root race will be given in the area of music, or something similar to music. What has to flow into the fifth root race, and particularly in the field of conscious intellectual life, is what we call kundalini fire. This is a force that is still slumbering in man, but which will become increasingly significant. Today it has a great influence, great significance, in what is perceived through the sense of hearing. In the further course of development, in the sixth sub-race of the fifth root race, this kundalini fire will gain great influence over what lives in the human heart. The human heart will really have this kundalini fire in it. Man will then be permeated by a particular power that will live in his heart, so that in the sixth root race he will no longer distinguish between his own well-being and the well-being of the whole. Man will be so permeated by kundalini light that he will have the principle of love as his innermost nature. In the seventh sub-race, the majority of humanity will truly be in chaos, for the root race will then be approaching its demise. 
but a small portion of people in the seventh root race will be the true sons of Kundalini fire. They will be permeated by all the forces of Kundalini fire. They will provide the substance for the next root race, for those who will direct the further evolution of humanity. Thus the fifth root race steers its course toward the heights where divine fire, Kundalini fire, ignites with pathos the divine principle in people's inner nature, so that one person will no longer be separated from the other, but rather as far as the thinking intellect extends, a sense of brotherhood is brought about. This fire will live in people one day, and already in those who are initiated in the course of the fifth root race, there is living a hint of this divine fire in which exists the power of brotherhood and which will supersede the separation between people. But it still has to work its way through, is only in its beginnings. It is still concealed, veiled by people's divisive passions, by the separating powers of Kama. And on isolated occasions where it appears as the herald of a coming time, it takes on another form, a completely different character. On the plane of deception, divine fire is divine wrath. Only once brotherhood has suffused the whole of humankind will it be divine love. But it is divine wrath, for as long as it appears as the fervor in a single individual, and it is a powerful force in the individual precisely because the rest of humanity is not yet sufficiently mature. This is also expressed by the poet. Homer is called the blind poet because he sees inwardly. In his work, quote, Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son, Achilles. Close quote. This is the divine wrath that Homer speaks about right at the beginning of the Iliad. The title Iliad is a depiction of kundalini fire expressed on the physical plane. In the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles, anger flares up as divine wrath. The legend of the Trojan War portrays how the old priest-king state is superseded by the rule of worldly kings. Troy is a state in which the king is under the influence of the old priesthood. This is superseded by the principle of worldly cleverness. It is a beautiful depiction of how worldly cleverness is victorious. Odysseus, the one of crafty stratagems, is victorious. He is the initiate of the fifth sub-race who received his initiation through his wanderings. The spirituality of the old priesthood is superseded by intellectuality. This is also expressed in the image of Leokun being caught in the coils of serpents. The serpents, the symbol of worldly cleverness, ensnare Leokun, the representative of ancient spirituality. When you look at all this, you see that the legend of Troy preserves no less than a world-historic situation. Such events were presented in the mysteries, in the older mysteries preceding the Eloicinian mysteries, precisely this important moment of the ascent of the fourth sub-race of the fifth root race was depicted, among other things the Trojan War, which really took place, was depicted in the mysteries before it occurred. For anyone unfamiliar with theosophy, this is, of course, preposterous. But there is a principle in the mysteries that presents the future alongside the past. And because future events are anticipated, so must they also be kept secret. The mysteries did not exist to satisfy people's curiosity, and only those individuals could participate in them 
who were called upon to collaborate in working on the future in a transformative way. There they could gather the impulses for their task. This is the meaning of the mysteries. So if someone were to reveal a mystery, this would mean telling people openly what was going to happen in the future. Doing this would inevitably cause confusion among their fellow human beings. Only advanced individuals receive the impulses for this. They have the task of slowly bringing people to where they one day need to be. Only a few advanced individuals who are ahead of their fellows by perhaps 500 years are in a position to bear these secrets and to act in accordance with the mysteries. Just suppose others were to hear of this. They would want to bring things about immediately for which people are not yet sufficiently mature. Every mystery becomes common property one day under substantially changed circumstances. Everything will be revealed at a specific time. The secret nature of these things lies in the fact that initially only a few individuals have the task of preparing the future. They must become the leaders in order to guide the others. There are secrets today that can only be revealed in the sixth root race, when completely different conditions of brotherliness, which cannot yet be realized, will be prevalent. Those who knew something about these things were naturally extremely anxious that, due to carelessness, something of the mysteries might be revealed. In earlier times, revealing the mysteries carried the highest penalty. In olden days, this was the death penalty. It was not the priests who carried out the death sentence, but people on the outside who had some knowledge but were not initiated. Fear of the mysteries being revealed led to the tragic end of many great individuals, Socrates, too, was the victim of such a judgment, although unjustifiably. That is the end of Lecture 10 and the end of the first part of the book. The second part is entitled, Richard Wagner in the Light of Spiritual Science.